Hello, I'm Raquel Williams, and welcome to a special one-hour edition of Bridging Philly. This program is called I'm Listening. It highlights various mental health topics and suicide prevention and seeks to smash the stigmas that go along with it. Here at Odyssey, we believe that talk has the power to save lives. I'm Listening reflects Odyssey's commitment to mental health during Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. Let's face it, the past couple of years have been as stressful as it gets. We've all been dealing with it and we need to talk with someone. By the end of this hour, unfortunately, we will have lost about five lives to suicide in the United States. But let's normalize seeking help. It's all right not to be all right all of the time. During this hour, you'll hear some personal accounts. You'll hear from experts who can help and who have helped people in the past get through rough and dark times. We can do this together. Anne Rosen Spector is a clinical psychologist in Philadelphia. She's counseled hundreds of individuals, families, students, couples, people of all ages. I spoke with her to get an overview of mental health and suicide, the keys to therapy, and why there's such a stigma associated with having these conversations. And thank you so much for taking time today for I'm Listening. My pleasure. You know, life is busy. I mean, we talk about it all the time. We all have stresses. It's easy to say, oh, just don't stress, just relax. But it's really it's really hard not to stress. And there seems to be this thought that if you're a quote unquote strong person, that you can handle everything on your own and you don't need to seek therapy or even talk to anyone about your problems. I would assume that that's a wrong state of mind. I use a metaphor, and I actually forget who told me this. I actually think it was my grandfather. And he said, it's the difference between an oak tree and a willow tree. A weeping willow tree is thinner, and it moves with the wind. An oak tree is solid and gets knocked down with the wind. And I think that, you know, a lot of people come and they go, I don't believe in therapy. But why is it important for us to incorporate therapy for our overall mental health? Why should we be checking in on our mental health often as well? I think it's for the same reason you do your, you know, primary care wellness visit, because if everything is going fine, you're good to go. But if something is not going fine, it's always easier to fix it in the early stages rather than the late stages. So if you've tried something three times and it doesn't work, Trying it nine times is unlikely to work, and maybe meeting with a trained psychologist can help you see that there's a workaround or a blind spot. You know, we often talk about the fact that all of us have what we call public areas. I know it, you know it. Then we have private areas. I know it, but you don't know it. But we also have blind spots, which is you know it, but I don't know it. And psychologists are trained in helping people find that blind spot. Wow. Wow. That's interesting. Well, you know, mental health issues, they they pretty much run the gamut. Uh, And so tell me about uh, some of the more common issues uh, that people are facing today that you deal with in your practice. Well, I think a lot of people are dealing, this obviously is not just because of, but if it's exacerbated by the pandemic, a lot of people are very, very isolated. They're now have all the benefits, and I use that word loosely, of working at home, but they've lost the camaraderie camaraderie of working with other people. And hopefully one of the things that is coming after the pandemic is that there'll be more meeting places 
but people really struggled with the fact that they were very lonely or they were in living situations that were really untenable, that the person that they were living with was better than nobody, but not by much. And the second thing is that many people don't know how to work through problems and they don't know how to access their feelings. They don't know how to articulate their feelings and therefore they don't know how to process their feelings. And we think, oh, you'll, you'll learn that at home. Well, in lucky cases you do, but in a lot of families, you're told to be quiet or your anger is unacceptable, you know, and so you don't learn how to process, you know, all sorts of emotions. A lot of people tend to talk about, well, I'm depressed or I don't feel that great today. I'm, I'm down today. I'm blue. It's OK to be a little blue. But when do you know that is more of a depression and is more of a problem? You're not going to feel great every day. Sometimes you know why. Sometimes you don't. And when I talk to women, and women don't necessarily like hearing this, but we know that we fluctuate. One of the things is, is hormonal, like we're having an off day. Some of it is accumulation of all the little, you know, problems that you have in your life. You're overwhelmed. If you wake up one day and you don't feel good, okay. If you wake up two days, you don't feel good, start to look at what am I doing? What am I not doing? What could I change? What could I add? What could I delete? So if you can do your own kind of personal care plan, you're good to go. But when you wake up every day and it feels heavy, or one of the clear signs of depression versus sadness is what we call anhedonia, which means lack of pleasure. So that even though you're at a party with friends, you're not having a good time. It's a sunny day. You're not having a good time. You just had something wonderful happen at work. It doesn't feel that good to you. So it's, it's almost as if you're looking at the world with dark gray glasses on. So when people say to you, oh, don't be sad, go out, it's a sunny day. It's not a sunny day for you. There, right. So there are things that are more short term, but for depression, just getting out of bed, taking a shower feels like a Herculean task. Wow. Yeah. I guess when it gets that heavy, it's, it's time, it's time to talk to someone. Yes, and even as you start seeing it, most people wait, I'm sure you realize this, wait way too long. You know, how long have you been feeling this way? 14 years. 14 years is a lot of unpacking. And so what I suggest to people is that they come in, you know, and I have people that I've seen, we've resolved many of their issues, and they come in periodically, just as you were referring to before, like a checkup. Once a month, here's what's going on. Do you see any red flags? Good to go. And then as time goes on, you know, it might be a once every six months checkup. We're always in, in need of improvement. Some of it we can do ourselves and sometimes we need help with. You know, one of the worst outcomes, though, Anne, of not addressing a particular mental health issue, I guess, is suicide. What are some of the signs that someone may be suicidal? So here's the problem. There are people who do nothing but study suicide. There are people who talk about suicide all the time, but they never try it. There are people who never talk about it and just do it. There's a difference between a cry for help and a true suicide attempt. And the problem is we don't, we don't know. There is no perfect way to predict it. There are people who are posting on Facebook or any other site all these horrible things, and they will never do anything. And there are people who post nothing and do it. 
So the problem with suicide is we don't actually know, oh, X plus Y plus Z equals suicide. I think we're on a much stronger ground if we say, you're clearly having trouble coping. Let's see if we can get you help so that you're feeling better about yourself and what you do. The thing is, we don't have any clear sign. Oh, if this person is doing this, you should rush in. I'm assuming many of us can't. I know I can't really fathom getting to that point. And I'm wondering, what is it that drives someone to go to that severely dark place? You know, sometimes it's very impulsive. Sometimes it's planned for a long time. Sometimes people are under the influence of alcohol or other kinds of drugs, so they're not entirely in their mind. But for most people, as we understand it, they have just been in severe emotional pain and they see no way out. Or they go to a therapist and they don't feel better immediately. You have to work through depression. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's, it's hard. It's not, it's not necessarily fast. You know, some people just don't have the capacity to really realize that when you go into therapy and you complain about everybody else, you can't change them. You would have to change how you deal with them. And, you know, we have a lot of people who come from families or in work situations where the other people are, are consistently unkind to them and damaging, et cetera. So you have to learn how to remove yourself. I'm wondering if teenagers um, are more likely to give in to, you know, dark thoughts. Are they more susceptible to this? Oh, absolutely. No question. First of all, none of us would want to go back and be teenagers again. Oh, it's no. Because you're growing and what am I going to be and who am I and where am I in the pecking order and everything's changing. I'm taller than everybody. I'm shorter than everybody, whatever. But then social media you know, it, it, it is not a friend. So when I was growing up, somebody said on something unkind, you would hurt, but then it was over. But now it's, you know, it, it, it's on a group chat. It's on, you know, some kind of social media. And so the idea of bullying people and the idea that lasts and you can't get away from it. And of course, the other thing, which is obvious to most people, but not always obvious to teenagers, people are putting their best selves on social media. If you're lonely, if you're depressed, you don't have friends, you look on Instagram, everybody's partying, everybody's happy, everybody looks perfect, everybody has a great outfit, you know, everybody's family life is perfect. It's, none of that is true. And then you compare yourself and to you them. And you compare yourself and you go, wait, I'm, you know, I don't have this, I don't have that. Right, you know? right. So the problem with social media is the people who are posting on social media are not posting truth. They're posting a version and nobody's going to put a version of themselves. Nobody posts how miserable I am, how sad I am. How important is it, Anne, would you say in our final moments here um, for people to just check in on each other, just make a phone call, uh, just check in and ask. And actually when someone asks you, how are you? And something's not good to actually just, if they have the time, just tell them. I'm going to answer that. I'm going to go back to something you said at the very beginning. Talking is very important. Listening is more important. And so some people don't want to talk and say, hi, how are you? You know, I I think of friendship and relationships, you know, kind of like a dartboard. 
we all want that 100-point friend, but, you know, we also have 50-point friends and 20-point friends, and we have different kinds of conversation with those people. But the other thing to remember is that somebody that's a 20-point friend, if you both start sharing, you're going to make that friendship worth much, much more. And, you know, people have to take that risk of talking to somebody and understand and, and believing that that person is really listening. And to be honest, going back to what we said before, some people don't grow up in families where that's true. And if you are a young teenage boy, you're not going to tell your friends, you know, that you feel less than there's a lot of bravado and, and, and you know, trash talking and, and whatever. So that is a real benefit of, of having a, your private, quiet space. And it can be with a therapist who's trained and has probably seen what you're dealing with many, many times. A good clergy can do it, a good coach. But it, if you you would have to, before you talk, find out whether there's the big feature, which I call receptivity. Does this person really want to take the time? And maybe if they don't want to take the time now, they'll take the time later. So before we share with somebody, we need to check out whether this is something we want, because there's some people that go, yeah, I, I just, I, I, that, that skeeves me. You're not always going to get it on your first try. And by the way, the same thing is true of a therapist. I've been doing this for 45 years. I've had a very successful career, but some people come in and we're just not a good fit. And I so they understand. need to find somebody else or I try to find them. And I see people that have been to another therapist and it's just not a good fit. And it's some people want certain demographic variables. I can't be a middle-aged black woman, no matter how much I try. If that's important to you, that's who you ought to get. But for some people, it's just that connection. I, you're really listening to me. You're paid attention to what I said. If you're giving me advice, it's advice that I can use. I'll, I'll leave you with a very quick story. I had this man come for quite some time. And demographically, we couldn't have been more dissimilar, but we were, he kept coming and he wanted to change X. So he and I worked on an action plan and he was going to go do it. Comes back the next week. And I said, well, how'd it go? And he just shakes his head. And I said, didn't work. He goes, I didn't even try it. I said, okay, it was too big. Let's make a half a plan. We work on that, leaves. Comes back the next week, shakes his head. I said, okay, it's just too big. Let's make this little plan. He said, I really think I can do that. I said, okay. Comes back the next week, he shakes his head. And I said, look, I got to tell you something. I'm going to retire someday. So you're going to have to kick it up a little. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we solved his problem. He went on, happy as a clam, done with therapy. He was just, it, it, it took time. And we finally found our sweet spot. And then he was able to go. So we're both working on it. I think that the therapeutic relationship, there's no way for you to accurately assess this. But if you were in my office every day, you would see that I'm a different therapist with each person. I have to find their rhythm and I have to be with their rhythm. Got it. Understand. And obviously, ultimately, people have to be open to having these conversations and uh, actually trusting someone with their feelings and their thoughts so that um, they can heal because we all need it. Ann Rosen Spector, thank you so much for joining us on I'm Listening. 
Talk saves lives, and sometimes it helps to hear from someone that you may be able to relate to. Keeping you informed on the day's news as you drive home from work each evening is KYW News anchor Jay Scott Smith. I sat down with him recently, and he shared with me his very personal struggle with mental health and suicide. What struggles and issues with mental health uh, reached a tipping point for you? I've dealt with issues of depression. It had gone back to when I was in high school. I've had various points had struggled with my depression more than anything else, the feelings of inadequacy and insecurity. It's, it's, it's a certain thing with black men in this country, and we're not always given the agency to be able to expose how vulnerable we are because in a hyper-masculine society as we have in this country, and it's gotten to me. In late 2018, I'd been out of a job for about eight months, wasn't able to really find anything, a relationship I was in had completely collapsed, and on the Sunday after Thanksgiving, I just thought that was it for me. That was going to be my night to just end it, and I was I was done. I'd made up my mind that I was done. And the the toughest part of dealing with mental health issues is that first step you take to try to acknowledge that something is wrong because you only you don't like to hear the word weakness. I tend to say that there's strength and vulnerability, and for me to break down like I did that night when I'm sitting on the floor having thought about taking my own life and then realizing, what if your mom finds you, dude? What are you going to do there? How does that work? And it just breaks you. I, I was broken only to be re, reformed by saying, hey, I got I to gotta seek help. I got to get help. And I was finally able to get insurance again. I was able to start seeing a therapist again. There is strength in vulnerability. If there's something happening, if you don't feel right, if you feel down, if you feel... If you feel like you're not worth being here, of course you are worth being here. Talk to someone. Find someone out there because you would be amazed just how freeing it is just to let a lot of that out. Be vulnerable because people will see so much more of you and you'll see so much more of yourself. That's where you realize where the true strength is. That is a powerful message and a powerful message that's needed, but it's okay to talk and it's okay to say that you're not okay. Very powerful message. When it comes to mental health, adults and teens and even young children process things a bit differently, especially when it comes to grief and loss. KYW's Mike DiNardo had a conversation with Samantha Anthony, a clinician with the Uplift Center for Grieving Children in Philadelphia. I'm Mike DiNardo, and I'm here with Samantha Anthony, a clinician at the Uplift Center for Grieving Children in Philadelphia, to discuss how grief and trauma affect children. We've seen the work of the Uplift Center in the Philadelphia School District and beyond. Uh, The center offers peer support groups for children and teens who have experienced the death of someone significant in their lives. Um, We're talking about peer support and a caring adult presence that helps those children reduce the feelings of isolation and loneliness that children can experience after death. This program is entitled I'm Listening. And Samantha, I'd imagine if we could boil down what you do to two words to help children, those would be the words, right? I believe that would be pretty accurate, yes. We are listening or doing our best to. So, so many things can affect mental health of young people, but few things, I'd imagine, are more traumatic and jarring than the death of someone close to them. So how do children process loss and grief differently from adults? I think often when we think about processing death or reacting to death, we think often of being sad or being upset or crying. What we know with children is that 
we respond to grief in a myriad of ways. And children respond to different things differently based on their developmental, where they are developmentally. So for instance, you might, a two-year-old will respond to grief and death, will have a grief response that might look vastly different from a 15-year-old. So what I mean by that is like common things that you'll see with like a two to five-year-old are things like regression, things that they just started doing. You just got your two-year-old to go to the potty. Well, now they ain't, they ain't about that life anymore. You know, they just started getting comfortable being in a bed by themselves. Now they need cuddles. They do not want you to go anywhere. A seven-year-old will say, will say, but are you coming back? A two-year-old might just start throwing a tantrum. So things like that is we know that the grief response is varied and it is unique almost by child, but it, there are some things that are similar developmental stage. You mentioned it's not unique by child. This is not a one-size-fits-all therapy, right? How do you go about uh, individualizing the, the therapy to help children process that grief? You listen. That's number one. People will tell you what they need if you listen and if you are open to hearing. You know, we have a standard sort of baseline that we work off of, but that baseline is not a one size fits all. So it's sort of like saying, well, if I want a dress, I know I need fabric. So we all come with fabric and then you tailor that dress to the student in front of you. You tailor that pair of pants to the student in front of you. But I can't do that if I don't at least have a basic understanding of how to stitch and what fabric is. Interesting. And people look different in the same clothing. And there's a there's a parallel there. What do you look for? What signs can alert you or a teacher that a child is A, processing grief on their own, or B, need more attention and they need some help? So grief looks like a lot of other things. And some of those things are things that teachers are already aware to look for in schools, especially in school settings. So grief can look like trauma. Grief can look like ADHD. Grief can look like oppositional defiance disorder. Um, so if you're noticing these things as a teacher, you might, you know, um, and a child may have those things and may be grieving. So it's actually okay to say, yes, I want to get this child assessed for ADHD. And I'm going to ask this child, hey, did something big and scary happen over the weekend, over the summer? Hey, is there something going on in your life that you want to talk about? Because grief will, especially in school, it will look like a lot of other things that we are already looking for in school. So how do you start? How Young people may not recognize uh, depression. They can't articulate what's wrong. They're not carrying a DSM around with them to diagnose themselves. So where do you begin? If you're an adult and you have a child that you care for in your life, like begin by being comfortable asking potentially uncomfortable questions. Like I say to friends that of mine, like you might want to ask a kid that something big and scary happened recently, depending on how old they are. Right. Like, you know, if we're coming off, off of summer break, how was your summer? Did something big and scary happen over the summer? Is there anything you want to talk about? That's a way to start. A child will tell you if they think they can trust you, if something big and scary happened. And that gives you an opening. Also, I want to kind of put a pin in the fact that it's not just death that children grieve. We grieve a lot of different things. And those responses can look like the way we grieve to death. So even if it's not somebody died, even if, and I say even, and I hate that word, but it may not be that somebody died. It may be somebody moved away. It may be, well, yeah, I, I don't get to see granny anymore because she's in the hospital. It may be, well, I just came from a different country or we're going to a different country soon, things like that, right? But I think the place to begin is by one, asking potentially uncomfortable questions and we, we honor that they can be uncomfortable. But also if there is a child in your life, we know the children in our lives. If we're thinking about something, if we miss somebody, 
our child might miss them. It's okay to ask. Too many children, as you're well aware, have experienced the, the impact of losing a friend or a classmate to gun violence in Philadelphia. Do do they need to seek counseling? Can they can they simply process that experience by talking to a parent or a teacher? Children are resilient. Children have been doing this work longer than we know without us. So what I mean to say by that is, yes, as adults, we owe it to the children in our lives and around us to be present for them, to make things easier for them where we can. So I don't want to say they can't process it because they have been processing it without without adults for a very long time. But there are adults out there that are ready to listen, wanting to help, and offer support. And I think that children should access those adults if they feel they need it. So you may not always feel you need it, and that's okay. So one of the things we say when we're doing our groups to kids is if you're not up to it today, that's cool. You can say, I pass. Because we know sometimes you're just, you're just not about that life, and that's okay. Uh, Samantha, how important is it that children work through their their feelings? And what's the danger if they don't? Say issues like grief and trauma and stress, just anything that kind of causes stress. And we know there's good stress and then there's like kind of not good stress, right? Stress is just your brain's been pushed just a little bit. Stress can be, oh crap, I'm five minutes late for work today. Can I take a shortcut to make it there? That's okay, stress. You just pushed yourself a little bit past. And then there can be really chronic stress, like somebody died. Um, I had to move out of my house. A fire happened into the house, like just stress upon stress upon stress, right? And that stress builds up in your brain. And what happens when we're experiencing stress is a bunch of hormones get flushed up to our brain. When those hormones get flushed up to our brain, what they do is they impact our ability to actually access other parts of our brain. So if we don't kind of see to that stress and do things to mitigate that stress, then those hormones rush up to our brain and kind of just pile upon, pile upon, pile up and impact our ability to access parts of our brain that we need for like focus and concentration and decision making. Fascinating. So you're actually talking about chemical changes in the brain. And uh, one major stressor that we've all had to deal with in the past two, two and a half years is COVID. And children are still dealing with the lingering effects of being isolated from COVID, learning through a Chromebook. Um, Does the overlay of COVID exacerbate symptoms of loss and grief that children may be feeling in, may have been feeling in other ways? I think one of the things to remember is that COVID in and of itself brought about a whole lot of losses, right? So COVID happened, we all had to go home and for many people, or stay home for our safety. But for a lot of people that meant, well, I don't get to see my friends. Well, that's a loss. I don't get to go to school. That's a loss. I don't get to go on vacation. That's a loss. Um, I don't get to go to the grocery store. That's a loss. For some of us, we didn't get to see family that we got to see on weekends, that's a loss, right? So COVID in and of itself came with a basket full of losses. And so those losses created grief. We grieved a lot of things during COVID. Children grieved a lot of things during COVID. And yes, while they were grieving those things during COVID, they were also continuing to grieve the things they were already grieving or that continued to happen. So Changes in their neighborhood, violence in their neighborhood, deaths going on, family deaths, friends' deaths, right? Those losses were still happening. People continue to get incarcerated during COVID. It's not like the world just said, okay, here's COVID. Everything else is going to stop. No, the other things continue. So I don't know if I want to say that it, it exacerbated, but I want to say that it definitely contributed in some way 
to our grief narratives. So our grief narratives are all completely unique. My grief narrative is going to be vastly different from even if I had a clone, my clone's grief narrative. All the more reason, I imagine, to to work through that grief by by talking and listening. One other thing I wanted to ask you is that you're well aware that young people communicate through social media and through their phones these days. What challenges do you face in your work getting them to open up in three dimensions? One of the lessons we had to learn as adults facilitating the groups quick and fast was that this world, Zoom world, so is a vastly different world from in-person world. So we had to adjust. There's a safety to social media world that sometimes wasn't there in in-person world. And so, yes, it was frustrating in the beginning because it's like, ah, I, I, I want to see you. Turn your, turn your camera on so we can talk. But then there's the chat. The young ones all communicate <laughs> via text and using social media. Well, we can use that. So, yes, it was a challenge to kind of adjust. I, but I think the challenge was ours as the adults and not the youths. They were like, yeah, yeah, we're about this life. It was about how do we use what so obviously works for them right? Because this works for them. It's safe for them. They're comfortable with it. Well, how do we take that and make what we're doing and what we're offering fit that? Instead of saying, how about you come meet me here? Because that's not what the work we do is about. If we are offering something to the youth, then I've got to meet them where they are. Where they are, right. Can you give us an example of where you really made a difference in someone's life? Oh, wow. One of the things that we say or that we know at Uplift is that when caregivers are taking care of themselves, the children in their lives are taken care of. And I think often caregivers are like, listen, I just need my kid to get all right. I will figure myself out later. So it always makes me really happy when I'm talking to a caregiver and they're, you know, we're having a conversation about their child. And then I say, what, well, how are you doing? And they're like, oh, well, hold on. What? I'm like, well, how, well, how are you doing? And we have that conversation. And then when they start to talk about things that they're noticing about themselves and then they're telling me what they want to do for themselves to take care of themselves because I know that that's going to translate to taking care of their child to being in a better place for their child so when I see that or talk to that caregiver or that the child of that caregiver a few weeks later and they're telling me things like yeah mom and I did this together um dad and I you know talked about mom last week that really feels like a success because we live in systems and as much as we're here to support children, I, we can't do that. We can't realistically support children if we're not aware of the systems in which children exist, including their parents and caregivers and whoever else is taking care of them. And that starts with listening. And perhaps more success stories can emerge and more children can find ways to work through the effects of trauma if they only had someone who would truly listen. Samantha Anthony of the Uplift Center for Grieving Children in Philadelphia, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Suicide is the 12th leading cause of death in the U.S. In 2020, almost 46,000 Americans died by suicide, and there were an estimated 1.2 million suicide attempts. Talk has the power to save lives. If you're in crisis, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Well, we know struggles with mental health does not discriminate and affects people from all walks of life. But it is noted that there are specific struggles in specific communities. KYW's Shara Day Howard spoke with Rashida Henry, an area counselor who specializes in having these very specific conversations. 
Welcome, Rashida. Now, you're the founder of Nose No Face, a mental health and counseling company based right here in Philly. Let's start off by explaining why the name Nose No Face. Absolutely. Nose No Face, the actual title of my business came from the idea that wellness, prioritizing mental health and wellness, knows no color. Sometimes in the African-American community, there's this stigma that certain wellness ventures are not for us or we're not worth prioritizing. But with Nose No Face, I educate millennials of color to let them know that they too are worth prioritizing their wellness. While still keeping in mind the stigma that is really strong within the community when it comes to mental health, when it comes to therapy and self-care. And being based in Philly, you have a special insight into the unique needs of Philadelphia. Knowing that it has a very large black and brown population, you speak to that and the unique traumas that come along with the black and brown experience. I think the stigma runs very deep, deep into our lineage. In terms of things like self-care, you know, when you really think way back into civil rights and back in slavery times, we didn't really have the opportunities and privileges to prioritize oneself because that just wasn't a thing for us. And so all of that, those behaviors, all of that, that thought process, all of that were filtered all the way down through the lineage. So this idea of like self-care and prioritizing oneself really is a bit foreign to people of color. And so where Nose No Face comes in is to to educate people on what mental health and wellness looks like, helping to reduce these ideas of stigma. And even as a counselor, I understand that everybody's not ready for counseling and the experience of counseling, but Nose No Face helps to introduce people to other forms of wellness as well, not just solely therapy. So I think so many times we go back in our history, our family history, and there's a lot of blank spots. So it's not just where the birth certificate was and originated from. It's also where did our personalities, our traumas come from? And these can be passed down as well. So these are things that add up and it's cumulative. So what happens when it comes to trauma that hasn't been addressed, especially in the black and brown communities? Yeah, Trauma that goes unaddressed piles and piles and piles. And until we are able to address it, identify it, develop a self-awareness, it compiles and it begins to show up in different ways, such as in our health. You know, sometimes people will notice, you know, diabetes and, you know, other stress-related disorders. So sometimes the manifestation of trauma can show up in that way, shows up in our behavioral responses. So, you know, sometimes people, you know, are, are very snappy or very irritable. You know, sometimes those can be a reflection of some unresolved trauma. And so it's very important that when and, you know, either yourself begin to notice changes within yourself where you are either feeling depressed or not like yourself, that you really consider reaching out for help. Because oftentimes this idea of pride and, you know, I'm strong and I can do it by myself and I'm resilient keeps people away from accessing help. We don't have to be ashamed to access it. We all have that person in our family, if not people in our family, plural, where uh, it's that guy and sometimes often that mother figure who's going, I don't need help. The hardest thing to do sometimes in our community is to ask for help. And things really got real for us the last few years between the pandemic and racial tensions. The black and brown communities really had a lot to deal with and to process. Absolutely. And often, too, you know, society doesn't quite always create a space for us to be vulnerable and express how we feel and, you know, express our emotions or to say, you know, to our bosses that, hey, you know, I'm not having a great day, you know. So um, I think that organizations, you know, that um, have employees, and, you know, businesses that, you know, have a bunch of staff should also, you know, make it a point to really try to find ways to assist individuals with, you know, 
prioritizing their wellness, you know, creating wellness environments or just reminding people that through their EAP programs, therapy sessions are offered usually at least a few at free of charge. We need to prioritize ourselves, and in doing so, we also can perform better in our work environments and in our roles throughout society. And we have unique stressors. You know, we have, uh, like, we talked about the compounding issues, but even today, the gun violence, and then we go on with microaggressions and all of these things, and we've all encountered it in the workplace, out on the street. There's no way to kind of avoid it. What are some of these unique things that you feel that you see in Philadelphians and in people of color in particular? Typically, a lot of people come to Nose No Face for support surrounding, like, grief and loss, you know, in the city of Philadelphia, because the gun violence has increased. We have a lot of people dealing with grief, you know, just not really sure how to navigate that. Where do I go next? And then a lot of people struggle with the PTSD of not feeling safe in their homes, in their neighborhoods, and just feeling like, oh, I need to get out of Philadelphia. So a lot of people are going through transitions and loss and really don't know where to start. I think specifically when we um, deal with people of color, we have to make sure that we are keeping in mind the historical context of um, what goes on with us. You know, Western culture itself is not always inclusive of people of color. When you're working with people of color, you definitely have to take in considerations when you are treating them, the various experiences that they have had, whether it be, you know, poverty that they have have experienced, you know, whether it be if they're in, you know, a two-person household versus not. You know, you definitely want to take into consideration any, the racism that sometimes is often experienced and the microaggressions. You know, sometimes when we, um, you know, are speaking to one another, we omit these experiences and almost act like they're not real. But I think that when you're working with people of color, you know, that's why it's very important to be culturally competent, making sure that you're taking into consideration all of the elements that can be potentially impacting a person um, when you are treating them. And so Nose No Face is a resource, but not the only resource. You know, worldwide, there are usually directories that I can reference, Therapy for Black Girls, um, Psychology Today. These platforms allow you to use your zip code to search therapists that are local to you. We have communities within communities. So we're looking at suicide rates that are just astronomical when it comes to LGBTQ and then also trans. Almost 40% of trans people say that at some point in their lives, they've considered or tried to commit suicide. I mean, these are things that need to be addressed. And of course, if our communities, we don't address the basic aspects of being of color, what about those people that fall into the cracks? Oftentimes, you know, they come and they feel isolated. They don't know, you know, where they belong. They don't know, um, you know, where they fit in. And oftentimes when they're in, you know, work environments, they don't quite understand the differences or the, the challenges that they experience. They often feel excluded. And so I definitely believe um, that with these subdivisions, there needs to be advocacy on, you know, definitely um, the political levels, on higher levels, really advocating for inclusivity. And I really, really think that, you know, again, more spaces need to be opened up where people can actually express the way they're feeling, express what their concerns are. And I think that, you know, when people are making decisions, you know, higher up management level, political levels, they need to involve people that are actually in, in the communities and ask them what their experiences are. Even as a therapist, when I'm meeting with people, I don't make an assumption about their experience. And I don't think that anyone should do that. I think whenever you have a question, ask, how are you doing today? How are you feeling? And don't assume what someone needs. Ask them how you can be of assistance. And there's 
even within the LGBTQ communities, and then of course the trans communities, and then you have youth. So then you have LGBTQ youth that's out there trying to figure it out on their own, and legislation has not paid attention to them at all, Mm -hmm. let alone workspaces, personal spaces. There are a lot of ways in which children, they get lost in the shuffle of it all. And I was one of those LGBTQ youth, and a lot of things happen that happen to you that don't happen to other kids. You don't have a childhood that looks like everybody else's childhood, but you're expected to behave and do all of the same things and have all the same successes. You know, I was out on the street early and had to find my way. Found the Attic Youth Center, the William Way, thank God, but it came by way of a lot of people who took the time to ask me, how are you? Mm. What do you need? And what about these youth? What about these youth of color who were in the LGBTQ community just trying to make a life for themselves? Well, thank God. I know that um, since I've been kind of working in the city, um, I have come across, you know, several resources that have been really, really supportive. Um, The William Way Center has definitely um, been a support in the individuals that I work with. Oftentimes when they need additional support, I often send them referrals. They've been really, really supportive. And there's other various um, housing opportunities that are specific for individuals in the LGBT community so that they don't feel ostracized or isolated. And so I do appreciate the different resources that are available. However, I wish that there were more. It is really nice to know that you can have a therapist that understands your experience. And having a holistic approach really matters. You don't count anything out. You really take a lot of disciplines into account. Absolutely. I definitely take um, a holistic approach to therapy, Um, just taking all parts into consideration. You know, some people in their uh, treatment approach, they isolate parts, meaning, you know, we're only going to handle the mind here. You know, the the physical is a separate entity. You know, the church is going to stay over there. I look at an approach of combining all parts. And actually, in my own testimony of healing and overcoming depression, um, it wasn't until I was able to combine all parts and learn to live holistically and kind of create a balance in all of the areas that I was able to sustain a level of wellness and happiness. Because as I always say, healing is collective. You know, it's not an individual process. When you are charged to heal, when you have been given the opportunity to heal, it doesn't stop with you. And so as I heal, you heal, and then I touch the next person, they heal, and it just doesn't stop. And you actually speak from experience on both ends. You too have suffered from depression, and you wrote about it. So my book is called Deliver Us um, from Darkness, and it's poetic memoirs of the heart. And again, that is about my journey of overcoming seasons of depression and illuminating purpose. One of the things that the book talks about without giving much away, it talks about overcoming fear. But the reason why I reference it is because sometimes we allow fear to block our blessings. We allow fear to stand in the way of our success. And we don't realize that sometimes that fear has to do with us standing in our own way. I mean, in my testimonies, it is my hope that other people too can overcome. With overcoming fear in mind, What would you like to leave our audience with, with regard to figuring out, okay, is therapy for me? Well, I definitely encourage people to think about one. If you are at a place where you kind of feel stuck, you don't feel like um, you are making any movement in your life, and you you know that there's more for you, and you don't know where to quite start, therapy may be for you. When it comes to identifying a counselor, there's many. And so you book a consultation with a therapist, that first therapist may not be for you. But I encourage you to keep going until you find someone that is a match. 
And in working with that therapist, it's very important to be very transparent about what your needs are because a therapist can't help you unless they know specifically what your needs are. And so, again, by way of directories, by way of contacting those no face, these are the ways to kind of vet a therapist. You can also reach out to your insurance company through your um, agency, the business that you work for. And you can also see if anybody is um, listed in your EAP panels. And through that, you can try to see if you can find a therapist that works for you. And so different modalities are used, just like with medical professionals, also various therapists. They have specialties in trauma and grief, grief and loss. And so you don't have to stop with just one therapist. If you don't think it's a right fit, if you don't think it's a match, you can continue to search. So you're pretty much saying it's like there's someone for everyone. Yeah. There is. There's definitely someone for everyone. So let's talk about the increased rate of suicides within the black and brown communities, the unique and very specific traumas and things that people of color deal with as opposed to their white counterparts. Yeah, absolutely. And there's various um, degrees of trauma um, that one experiences. I know a lot of the people of color that come into Nose No Face, they often often deal with um, poverty, um, you know, various degrees of sexual abuse, you know, just the fact that they're marginalized. All of these things, these experiences kind of pile up as trauma. You know, even sometimes, you know, we are counting forward as the things that they experience in adulthood and sometimes omit the things that individuals experience as children. And so all of these accumulation of experiences sometimes manifest in different ways in your experience that you don't realize, such as if one is hypervigilant, if someone, as I referenced earlier, is increasingly irritable. You know, sometimes we are not um, very passionate or empathetic to people that present in those ways, not realizing this may be associated to some degree of trauma that they have experienced. So I encourage people that if you're in the helping profession or even if you have loved ones that you you see or witness that may be just, you know, not themselves or just acting in ways that might be a little off-putting, stop for a moment. Ask them, is everything okay? Because there may be something deeper rooted happening, and this may be a cry for help. So don't judge. Just ask. Yeah. And how do people get a hold of you? On nosenoface.com. According to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, there is no single cause for suicide. It most often happens when stressors and health issues convert to create an experience of hopelessness and despair. For those that are left behind, it also leaves grief and trauma. One of our colleagues here at KYW shares her experience about the loss of a friend. Hey, it's KYW Midday Anchor Denise Nakano, and I had a dear friend take his life. He was one of the smartest and most talented guys I'd ever known. He was a loyal friend. He was a loving husband and father with a successful career. And his suicide was devastating, shocking, and heartbreaking to all of us. He'd been struggling for a couple of years, and even years after his death, I think now about how I wish He could have gotten the help he needed. I wish we all knew how deep in pain he really was. I wish he were here so we could listen more intently, help and let him know this world is better with him in it. If you ever find yourself in a dark place, please know there's help. Even when it feels like nothing will help and nothing will ever change. Please talk about it because it is okay not to be okay. Talk can save lives and we are listening. And this world needs you. We've come to an end of a very violent summer in Philadelphia, but we don't hear too much about the people who help the families of victims that are left behind, those who are left to deal with the trauma of losing a loved one to violent crime. 
KYW's Christian Johansson sat down with Melanie Nelson. She's with the District Attorney's Office CARES Unit. And Melanie, you've been dealing and working with victims for a very long time. Can you talk about kind of how you started getting into it? Actually, I was groomed, if you will. My mother was the previous, previous executive director for Northwest Victim Services. My mother started volunteering at Northwest Victim Services. She volunteered, sat on the board, became the board president and the executive director. I did the same thing, was not planned. But in high school, I would help my mother with fundraising events. And then when my mother retired in 2012, I sat on the board, became the board president, and then the executive director in I fell in love and the rest is history. On a personal level, have you known any victims of gun violence over in your lifetime? Unfortunately, my uncle was murdered in 2007, I want to say. And he was murdered in East Division. He was with one of my cousins and he was shot multiple times. How did that experience change you as a victim advocate? You know what? At the time, it didn't register. It was just like so unbelievable. I remember relaxing in the bed and getting the call that Bo was shot and killed. And my uncle, his brother, and then one of my aunts, they went to, they had to go to Temple Hospital. And at the time, again, not thinking about, you're, you're not, you, you put all the stuff in perspective years later because Temple is, dynamic the staff at temple is dynamic but at that time i didn't know anyone at temple but they had to go to temple and identify my my uncle and going to the funeral was unbelievable it wasn't like your average funeral for an older person because my uncle was into some stuff and that funeral, I was more looking at how he lived his life, not with the family, but when he wasn't around the family. So I was actually observing the people that was at the fa- at the funeral other than my family members. Almost like, I guess, that just as like, I guess, to, to try and reason with it in your brain. I about- was. And it was it was unbelievable. And unfortunately, my uncle lost his father. And when he lost his father, everything, it went down at at that time when Pop Pop died. His mother, unfortunately, had some unfortunate incidents as, as far as life. But when Pop Pop died, that was it. And then his mother was had some unfortunate incidents in, in her life. And then he hooked up with my cousin and... That was it. And so when you kind of have to talk to families that have just gone through this horrible trauma, some who have seen and been eyewitness to their family members, how do you feel like you maybe relate to them more than even maybe before 2007? I mean, do you feel like there is a kind of a change and a shift? You can say, actually, I I understand. I, 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 I understand. <clears throat> actually, believe it or not, I never say. I understand. I've never told that story. No one ever no one knew about my uncle. When I'm dealing with victims and when I'm dealing with co-homicide survivors, I treat everyone the same. 
whether it airs on the news or whether it does not. I try to give them all respect and and I, I listen to them. I try to be there for them. It's not Monday through Friday, nine to five. I, I welcome those calls on a Saturday. I welcome those calls on a Sunday, 4th of July, Christmas, Thanksgiving. Whenever they need me, I try to, I try to be there. Because you know what I think about? God forbid one day my family is in need. I, I want someone to treat me the way that I treat others. That's what I think about. Nobody's exempt from anything. So when I'm serving these victims, I give it my all. It's not a job. And it's I know, my passion. I know that firsthand because I remember I was before you were at the DA's office when I met you back in Northwest. There was a situation where a girl lost her boyfriend who I believe was 16 or 17. He was young. She was younger. She was maybe 15. And it was cool out, at least or cold. And I remember calling you because this girl wanted to see where her boyfriend was shot near the grocery store. I just happened to drive by because I had to get a picture for our website, whatever. And then she's out there and tears are actually, there's just like absolute continuous stream of tears. And she's in like a little thing, not, you know, like a little, and she's freezing and nobody's with her. There's no support. She's asking people, do you know what happened? Do you know what happened? Do you know what happened? The police officer tried to talk to her a little bit, but he didn't feel necessarily comfortable with taking her home at that moment until he talked to a supervisor. But the right. first person I thought of and the first person I called was you. And I said, can I get you the, can I send this girl's number to you? He said, absolutely. I'm going to call her right now. Send me her number and I'm going to call her. Mm-hmm. And that's what you did. In moments like that and just on a personal level for somebody who's on the front lines, who deals with this and our crisis that's going on in the city, how do you personally separate or how are you able to handle it like with your own mental health for me let me say self-care is important and I don't always practice self-care but what I do do every night is I go to Wakanda after I saw uh Black Panther I I, I called it I call it Wakanda I get in a tub every night and I'm in there for about two hours and I have the music blasting whatever I want whether it's R&B, whether it's rap, whether it's gospel, it's whatever I feel at that point. But that's my self-care. There are times which what's very hard for me is the babies. When when the crimes happen to the babies, that's when my my self-care, nothing works other than me crying in the arms of my husband. And, and my husband actually sees that. So my husband has been like my rock. So sometimes... As as advocates, you do take this stuff home with you. This stuff lives with you every single day. I have grandchildren. I have children. I have a mother. I have a father. So this stuff lives with me every day. So you don't shake it if it's your passion and not just a job. I couldn't agree more. And I see that with the district attorneys, the prosecutors, the defense attorneys, Everybody on the front lines with this, obviously the police officers who are sometimes seeing it, you guys, every victim advocate, you know, we, I've seen victim advocates in court, you know, I don't know how they handle it too. Sometimes those people are also on the receiving end of the anger, but the, and they have to kind of absorb that and they don't fire back at that Correct. because they understand the anger right. in a sense. Like it's not directed at you, Correct. it's directed at what happened, Yes, but you just happen to be in the way of that, right? right? Mm -hmm. The city is so traumatized right now. 
if somebody needed to who has experienced a lot of gun violence or maybe who even hasn't experienced a lot of gun violence but sees a lot of it going on and keeping the focus on mental health, what what kind of advice, I guess, would I would say would you give them to be able to take care of themselves? And if they don't feel like they can take care of themselves, how they can be taken care of? Therapist. Therapy is extremely important. It's it's great to speak to somebody. You have to unpack what happened. Now, as far as the victims and co-homicide survivors, therapy is extremely important. They may never heal from what occurred, which is okay. But you need someone to help you not even get through 24 hours because that's hard. Sometimes you need somebody to help you get through hour by hour. But a therapist will be able to speak to you, give you some type of plan to be able to get through hour by hour. Some people have to take it minute by minute, but it's important to speak to a therapist. And then to some people, they do have a strong family bond and that family bond could be their therapy, but you have to speak to someone. Do not keep it bottled up. And it's also good for support groups for those people that can say, I understand what you're going through. You know, but what is interesting is that I have developed relationships with many people across professional and friendships across kind of our spectrum, obviously with the fellow journalists, but with advocates as well, you know, even sometimes prosecutors or defense attorneys, because it's almost like when we're in a trial and we have to see what we see and we see the injuries that happen. And then we hear the wails of the mothers Mm -hmm. and the fathers. And when you talk about babies, that's when I lose it. Mm -hmm. But there's a we're human too. This Mm -hmm. isn't running down the story of the day, Mm -hmm. although it sometimes feels that way. Mm -hmm. We actually have to talk, you know, it's our job to put it all back Mm -hmm. and to talk to people and try and get these stories out. And so it's interesting when you say support groups, because those relationships I feel have developed because Mm -hmm. they're the only other people that understand Mm -hmm. what I go through, what you go through. You know, I was in the elevator with a father this morning who lost his 16 year old son and we always check in on each other. You know, he, he knows yeah. that I'm doing what I'm doing. I know another woman who works in that same building who lost her nephew who was shot mm-hmm. up in North Philly. Another one whose brother was killed. And they always check up on me and I always check up on them. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like I am not a co-homicide, mm-hmm. thankfully, mm-hmm. co-homicide victim. I am so thankful for that. And I do have my family. But just you talking about that support system, mm-hmm. it's like I had to find like kind of like an outside support system Mm -hmm. that understands it it's true and especially if you're that strong person your family thinks they're strong they got it no i don't have it i have my job and then i'm the rock of the family and you know i get up in the morning i put my face on this is what i have to do so you're going to so the outsiders they're going to see me smiling but inside my heart's heavy I'm tired. I'm ready to give up, but I keep pressing forward. So it's very important that we check in on those strong people because they have their weak moments and they need love. They need that hug. They need that kiss on the forehead. They need that, you know what, just sit down for a second. Let me get you a bottle of water. How was your day? What can I do for you? But strong people don't often get that. And I think truly just listening helps. 
Mm-hmm. I did that I with agree. my boyfriend the other day. I just cried for two hours. Yeah. And he sat there and listened and rubbed my back because yeah. I just was, yeah. it was one of those days. Yeah. Melanie Nelson, thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're welcome. We appreciate you and everything you do for the city of Philadelphia. Thank you. Thank, thank, you. You. thank you for joining us for this very special edition of Bridging Philly. I'm listening. Talk has the power to save lives. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK or contact the Crisis Text Line by texting TALK to 741-741. For all of us here at KYW, I'm Raquel Williams. Remember, you are not alone. You're a blessing to someone, and someone can be a blessing to you. Be well.